what did you want to be when you grew up? What did I want to be? I always wanted to be a policewoman, but I was too, because uh, I'm old, I am <laughs> quite old, I was too small. Right. I was, I'm only five foot one and a half, and years and years ago when I was like six, 17, 18, too small. Yeah. I always fancied being a policewoman. So how tall did you have to be to be a policewoman? I think it's five foot five or something. Right. And I yeah, was just yeah. going to get nowhere near that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I always fancied that. I mean, I think years later, I actually went for a job in um, a control room at Wakefield, mm. um, but I didn't get through. Um, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a policeman. Mm. Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to episode 23 of Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. My name is Simon, and you're listening to my guest, Tina Leslie. This is another Zoom interview, recorded on the 2nd of November, 2021. It's taken me some time to get to this, and to get to putting this and the next few episodes out. There's a lot of reasons for this, some professional and related to production, others personal. This project is, at the moment, a hard slog, at least it has been recently, and yes, a slog I made for myself. But I do have to find the time, energy and patience to make this podcast. It's not super easy to get guests, and it's not super easy to find an audience. It costs money to create, produce and host this show. So there are very strong incentives to stop doing this podcast, but there are also some much better reasons to keep on going. I do find this project fascinating, and I believe there are others out there in my home city who would be likewise fascinated. People who also want to hear from real people. From the people who, like them, do the actual work. Not people selling books and talking abstractly about us all as if we're just data, but actually listening directly to people in or from our city. Hearing from them, from you, about all the differences and similarities in our roles and workplaces. Hearing about the sort of work you do and why you do it. Hearing about my neighbour's day, taking a snapshot of someone's career at a point in time. Hearing directly from a person about how what happens in the media actually affects their work. Tina was great to hear from and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. Tina Leslie is a former call centre worker and community development worker. Currently she is a fitness instructor and public health worker. She is also the founder of Freedom for Girls. Freedom for Girls' mission and aims are to support those who menstruate by challenging the stigmas, taboos and gender inequalities associated with menstruation through education, provision of menstrual health management solutions and actively being at the forefront of the wider campaign against period poverty. I wanted to get the language right there. To find out more about Freedom for Girls, go to www.freedomforgirls.co.uk if you're a lawyer and you're listening to me and you think you might be able to answer questions you already know all the answers to, please get in touch to arrange a time to record for this show. Email me at workinghourspod at western-studios.com, add a short bio and some suggestions of your availability. Also drop me a line if you have any queries or feedback, complaints or compliments. If you can be generous and wonderful enough to leave me a review on Apple or Amazon, then please do so. If you can leave a really good review for me, please do. That would be really good. So what is it that you're doing now then? Well, what is it that I'm not doing now? <laughs> More the question. So my day job is I work in public health. I'm a health improvement practitioner. I work in the inner east of Leeds. I've worked there for 13 years. I'm also a fitness instructor. So I teach many different things, circuit training, hip training, Pilates, 
you name it, um, spin, that sort of thing. I also run, I founded Freedom for Girls, period poverty charity. Mm-hmm. That's quite a bit of a full-time job as well. Mm. Um, and as well as that, I volunteer a lot with food banks, well, a lot since COVID anyway. So yeah, do a lot of stuff with food banks and also other items that people are really needing nowadays that we wouldn't mm. think about normally. So let's start with the health and fitness first. Which came first, the health or the fitness? Were you a fitness person who decided to get into health? Or? No, well, really, for the first 25 years of my working life, I worked in call centres. Right. And I thought that that's the only thing I could do because I left school many, many years ago, um, 40 years ago, uh, with no GCSEs or anything like that. So I just thought that I couldn't do anything. I couldn't achieve anything. And that's all I could do. I could sell. I've got the gift. I had the gift of the gab. So people used to tell me I could sell ice to the Eskimos. So I, mm. I sold a lot of things. I started with sewing machine needles. Would you believe? No, the first job I had was um, selling steel girders. <laughs> um, and then I sold, sold sewing machine parts and needles. And then I went on to do selling bank accounts at first direct. So. Yeah, the fitness stuff came later, would you believe, when I was 40. You know, when people say life begins at 40? Yeah. Well, it certainly did for me. It was just a very strange time. Yeah. So, yeah. At school, I was always, like, quite athletic. I used to like sports. I used to like swimming. Mm-hmm. But over those 25 years, I didn't really do a lot. And then when I got to 40, I had my third child, and I put on, like, five stone in weight, and I hated it because um, I'd mm-hmm. never been really big. So yeah. I decided to go to the gym. So we had a gym at the bottom of our street. So I joined that and started working out and I started going to classes. And there was these two amazing fitness instructors there. And I just thought, you know what, I could probably do that. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why, but I thought I could do it. <laughs> so at the time I was on quite a low wage and I could get loads of college courses mm-hmm. free. Yeah. Like it was when working families tax credit actually helped you rather than yeah. hindered you. So they used to offer you lots of things that they don't offer you now. So I went and did actual about seven or eight courses at Thomas Danby, what it used to be yeah. in 18 months. So I realized that actually I was quite a practical person. You know, I can't write reports and I can't do degrees, but I can draw stick men yeah. <laughs> and teach people how to exercise. Yeah. Um, so that actually came first. And I did lose my five stone and everything like that. And I became a run leader and lots of other things like that. Mm-hmm. And then through that, I don't know, I suppose a few different things. I got a job as a, a community development worker. Never thought I would ever become a community development worker, but it was a case of I started doing some exercise classes in the community while I was doing the, my courses, while I was still had my d- uh, job at First Direct, which is where I worked. Um, and this woman came up to me, she saw you're a natural. I think you'd, you'd be really good at the community development work. And I said, I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. She said, well, I'm leaving in six months. I'm going to New Zealand. So I'm going to show you what I do because I know you can do it. Anyway, so basically that's what happened. And I was just a natural, you know, everybody says you've got one thing good in you that you can do in your life. Yeah. I think that was what mine was. I could speak to people. I was good at talking and getting people motivated mm-hmm. so i actually got her job six yeah. months later and that's when my actual life turned around because my, my wage doubled overnight from mm. being in a call center to actually being a community development worker so yeah 
that's how it all started, really. And then what happened was after 18 months, because I had three children and a mortgage and it was a funded job and I'd never had a funded job. I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So I applied for this job in public health as a health improvement practitioner and got that job amazingly enough. Mm -hmm. I did do NLP and stuff like that to try and overcome my fears of like, I'm not worthy of this job because I'm, I always think I'm, thought I'm really, really thick Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I never got any any qualification. Yeah. And that's, and even today, I'm still the same. I'm really, but I've actually realized now, I think I've got some sort of dyslexia or dyspraxia or ADHD that I don't learn the same as people, other people. I can do practical things, but not, um, yeah, other stuff. Yeah, I'm dyslexic, dyspraxic, and it didn't, like, it wasn't shown up until I was doing my degree as a mature student, so I was in my 30s before it was diagnosed. And if it had been diagnosed during school, I would have had a totally different sort of outcomes in school. Mm. Um, And you just think of all those people, like, everyone in all those classes all those years ago, they just, you know, nothing gets picked up. No, and I, and I always thought it was like more. The older I got, the more I thought there was something wrong with me because I could read stuff and understand it, but not write it. Right. I get this block, and I can read something, and then only take the first bit in. Yeah. Um, and then it just everything goes all over the place, and you yeah. know, it's actually to write it down is and. And it's only in the last few years that I've thought, well, actually, is there something not quite, it's like my wife, you know, like your brain isn't wired up. How yeah. can people remember? That's why I was never good at exams because when, you know, 40, everything was exams. In fact, apart from the 16 plus, which was geography, which because mm. it was multiple choice, I passed that. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's very practical. And, and I've got lots of level two and level threes in fitness instructors and, you know, um, exams, but that was all practical stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, nowadays there's a lot to be learned by that, I think. And that yeah. still, are, still I'm not diagnosed, but I still know there's something wrong with me. But actually, <laughs> would you believe in the end of September, I did sign up for a degree. Right, cool. bit ridiculous. But it's a degree in what I've been doing for the last 13 years. So it's health right. and society. Yeah. And I am really, really struggling. And I really keep, I mean, I've already said I don't want it after two weeks. I said, I can't do it. I love the, you know, I love the lectures and, and I understand it all, but actually I, my head doesn't get around the reading and I'm like, it puts yeah. me off. And I think that's all almost like my ADHD. You just haven't got, I've got a concentration level of a nuts. <laughs> I think. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember how I did it. You know, someone while I was on my course was kind of like, you should probably get yourself tested for stuff. And then once you've got that kind of diagnosis, then you can kind of get the support. But I think it's probably like, if you're doing the degree, I really enjoyed my degree. And I think, you know, I think anyone would normally get quite a lot out of a degree, especially when you're doing it later. So if you do want to continue, I think it's probably worth, you know, getting it looked at. And Yeah, I mean, I, I said that to the course leader, actually. I said, you know, she said, oh, we'll help you. Like, I've said to her about, you know, all the fears that I've got about doing it. And she said, oh, yeah, we'll help you. We'll help you. It's like, no, but do I need to get diagnosed? And then obviously you have to pay to get diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, when I looked through all the, the leads, the uni stuff, it said, oh, yeah, if, you, if you've been diagnosed this, we can help you with that. Yeah. But it's like, well, actually, I haven't been diagnosed. So how are you going to help me? You know, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> I think student services can potentially put some money towards or they can recommend like the education but i 
I don't know, it was ages ago when I did it and the rules change every five seconds, don't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're all business now, aren't they? It's all yeah. just a business, like, massive. Thing. We won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into, like, you know, universities are just there to, you know, like, get loads of money from students. <laughs> but I'm not paying for it. <laughs> so my, my work is paying for it. Yeah. They'll pay for you to be tested, no doubt, surely. I, don't, I, might, I might look into it. Yeah, have a look through the work policies on learning and development stuff and see. Look, it says this here <laughs> that you forgot to update. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really funny because during lockdown, um, my, me and my friend used to go walking. Well, we still do. We've done it for 18 months. Every morning before work, we'd go out at 7 o'clock and walk around the park. And another friend said, oh, I think you've got ADHD. I'll send you a questionnaire. Anyway, so she sent me this questionnaire, and as we were walking around, I, I did this questionnaire, and it's like, ding, ADHD. I'm, I'm not really OCD about anything, as in, you know, um, I, well, I suppose I sort of am, but yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it, when you, you do a questionnaire and <laughs> something says, oh, it's not, you know, it's almost like, it's like a, almost like a label, but it's not because it was only a questionnaire, right? it wasn't like yeah. a diagnosis or anything. Anyway, that's by the by, that's going off <laughs> what we're talking about, but it's quite interesting anyway. Yeah, it's an interesting diversion. I, I think a lot of people, like you say at school, people just aren't practical. I mean, some mm. people are practical and, and some people are very good at, you know, writing and things like that. I was never good. I can remember numbers, but not words. Yeah, well, I mean, people's brains are just wired differently. You know, everyone, everyone's kind of wired a bit differently. Well, yeah. So, like, it must have been a little bit overwhelming to then go into a job in public health i mean were you doing sort of health work in the community um, development work so my community development work was like my my title was um what was it um well, i can't remember what it was though what was it it was um uh physical activity community development worker that's what it right. was so basically what i had to do is get the whole of chapel town and hair hills physically active mm -hmm. which i did quite well i mean at one point we were, i was i'd set up over like 21 sessions a week in different places you know doing things and I, and i also did other stuff as well so i also did um so not just doing the fitness stuff i organized um like um i suppose healthy health like i suppose unit uh, community unity days and things like that and i, I work quite closely with public health because a lot of public health funding goes towards third sector organizations mm. you know, to put stuff on you know so like community days and like um weight management things so i sort of mm. knew a little bit about it and i'd worked quite closely with um, some people and I'd, I'd done which is it was very innovative in, in the day I, I did um um a sort of project called Moodments, and it was about um, getting men who were who had low mood into doing physical activity and getting together because they were quite um, isolated. Um, yeah. So, so that was quite well before its time, and that was a public health funded thing. Then, and that worked really well. And this, mm -hmm. and that's we're going back thirteen years, fourteen years now. Mm -hmm. Now it's some that massive thing, but then it was like you know, well, this is really really new, but it, it was a gap. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so going into then public health, it was quite scary because I didn't even know what it was. Mm. It took me two years to actually really <laughs> understand what it was. Because most people in public health have a master's. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. So you have to have a master's or, but of course I was only a practitioner. Um, I didn't need a, um, a degree, which was quite good. And also I did a lot of practical things that, and I, and because I knew a lot of people in the community already, because mm. I'd worked as a community, it, it really helped with my public health role. Mm. It was almost like an extension of that, but it was just not working with, it was working with organizations, not people. Yeah. So it's like a step up, you know, community development is taught, you know, he's actually working with people on the ground, whereas um, public health is more working with the organizations that are working with the people on the ground. Yeah. It took me a long while to sort of understand that. Yeah. Did it feel like just a sort of natural progression to kind of go into that role or was it more like you should really do this and you kind of got pushed that way or? I think. The reason why, I mean, I actually took a wage cut to do it, but I realized that actually, because at the time, public health is now in the council. It was in the NHS mm. to start with when I when my job function then changed into the council. And it was a case of, at the time, I took a wage cut, but actually over the next two years, I earned more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it was the funded thing. I, I think I was just... I just thought, I just need to do this because it's a, a proper job <laughs> yeah. proper job, and I've got a kid and, you know, I've got a mortgage and three children yeah. and I, I'll just have a go at it, you know, but actually I really enjoyed it because you can all, you always like make it your own, you know, obviously you have objectives, yeah. and, and, but you know, tackling health inequalities is, you know, massive. Yeah. Um, and actually 13 years later, we're doing the same old stuff as we were 13 years ago. It's, yeah. It's not got any better. And as well, you're into, you know, like you say, making the job your own. You're in a, a level of a role where you do have that autonomy, where they're kind of like, well, we expect you to bring ideas to the table. Yeah. I mean, did you get that? Did you, were you always sort of frontline when you were in the call centers or did you sort of get into management supervision and anything like that? No, I mean, I did. <laughs> I was always on the phones apart from, I did a little bit of training. I did some fraud mm. education training, which was really interesting. Mm. You know, like, you know, trying to, catch people out who were yeah. <laughs> doing fraudulent applications and stuff. So I did a little bit of training, but that's all I did. I didn't go into management. I never thought I was clever enough to do management. Mm. I still am. I'm still not very good. I'm, you know, I'm too soft. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, you do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I didn't, I'm, and I'm not, I think um, I'm not a competitive person really. You know, I know my, it's really weird, but I know my own limits. I know what I can do and I know what I can't do. And what I can't do, I get other people to help me do that. Yeah. yeah. And empower them to do it because actually I can't. I'm rubbish, you know, yeah. some things. And I, I understand that. It doesn't bother me. Whereas other people would be like, I think, and that's my, you know, that's almost like, I just don't have time to do it. I just need somebody else to help me. Mm. And so... Yeah, and I think it's a you know, and that's like a good quality because you know you need to work together to do stuff yeah. to get things done. You can't do it all on your own. Yeah. So we'll stay on this for a little bit longer, and then we'll move into freedom okay. for girls. We should cover COVID and we should cover the lockdown. If you want to talk about freedom for girls during this as well, feel free to bring that up. Yeah. I've really got into it yet. What was the lockdown like for you, and what happened? Was it just a matter of stopping everything? waiting and then saying okay well we're not necessarily going to open in a week so we have to change all our plans how did it go for you for me it was like oh my gosh this is awful this is going to be i mean before lockdown you know you just did your stuff like you did i still had you know still doing freedom for girls i was still doing my job but you know we were doing different things when mm. covid hit it was like okay 
you know, we need to, we were doing different stuff in public health. Mm. You know, everything went to, you know, first of all, protecting people. So doing a little bit of the health promotion around, you know, staying indoors, protecting yourself, making sure shops and, and things like that were COVID secure. So I was always out. I was like out on the street, you know, going to shops and giving them posters to say you need to, you know, wear a mask and wash your hands and all that mm. stuff. I was doing all that anyway. And then, so I was always out. I wasn't, you know, everybody else in public health was attracted to their little offices. But I was out and about and I just thought, oh gosh, I need to do, you know, this is really bad. But when the testing came out, I started doing all the testing. So I was out um, in the testing stations. We were doing surge testing, you know, when all the new variants came along. I was, you know, like organized, not organizing, but I was there, you know, like supporting, doing door knocking and this and that and the other. I was down at, we had a, a big testing center down at Mandela. I don't know if you remember about last August, September time yeah. when all the kids went back to school. So we had a testing center down there and it was just manic because everybody who came back to school with a cough was queuing outside Mandela center. We had 250 people a day wanting to be tested because they wouldn't let them back to school. So I was there running about like, yeah. So it was, it, it was really busy for me. Not just on that level, but also on the Freedom for Girls level, but also on another level as well. Mm. So with Freedom for Girls, before um, lockdown, before COVID, we were delivering about 500 packs a month. That's period packs. And then a couple of months into, I don't know if you know, but you remember the toilet paper issue in lockdown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a period product buying issue as well, but that never mm. actually came out. So everybody like bought pads up until their menopause and stuff like that so it's not on the shelves so it was really really difficult you know people had been on furlough it was just awful and then so we went we ramped up to delivering 2,000 packs a month but we wow. had to do that differently because obviously there's nowhere open so yeah. all the organizations had retract, retracted that we normally deliver to mm. um People, you know, there was no face-to-face. -face. People weren't going to community centers where we delivered. We weren't going to organizations. So we, I had like um, a network of people, women, um, sort of like a WhatsApp. I'd created a WhatsApp group with all like um, sort of leaders of communities. And I said, right, okay, we can still deliver period pads. Just let me know. And what we did is we ended up finding people in communities who could deliver to their communities. Mm -hmm. So we would deliver like, I don't know, 80 packs to somebody in the Swahili community. Um, and they, that, that lady then would deliver, you know, bring up all her friends and say, I've got some pads. You know, they come and collect them from the end of my drive or I'll drop them off at the end of yours. Yeah. So it became a very much everybody working together because periods don't stop in pandemics, unfortunately. Mm. And then... So I was still doing my day job, still doing that. But then I realized about, I don't know, a month or two, maybe April, May time, that there was a lot of kids that I deal with. So I, I work in the inner east of Leeds, which is Chapeltown, Hare Hills, Gibson, you know, the most deprived areas. That a lot of kids were at home with nothing to do. They, weren't, they didn't have any money. Their parents didn't have any money. So I thought, right, these kids need stuff to do. So mm -hmm. I put a thing, uh, like a call out on Facebook to some different Facebook pages and said, oh, I'm doing a collection for kids who need something to do, you know, activity packs. Because that was also what had happened with the people who I was delivering the packs to the same. We've got kids here who've got nothing to do. They're pulling their hair out. We can't go out. Da, da, da. Um, so um, I managed to, in 
oh, it's ridiculous. In four days, get about 10,000 items. Good. Um, and remember like last year, last last yeah. year, it was really hot, in, you know, all through summer. So I went mm. to my friend's front garden um, and we got all these toys and activity packs out and I had a list of loads and loads of kids, you know, their gender and their age and put mm -hmm. packs of stuff together um, and then delivered them all out. So, yeah, that was a bit of a, why, why the heck have I done that? But I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, but then there's those people who think, well, you know, they've, it's all right saying I'll go on Zoom to do you know to do your work or your classroom work, but you know you got some families have one brick phone between the whole lot of them. They've got nothing, so they couldn't do it. You know they didn't have anything, and then they didn't have any food. So I managed to get um, food every week from a, um, a culture. So it was like um, they started up a cultural food hub. So a lot of people are culturally diverse in where I were in an inner east. So I managed to get every week lots of cultural, cultural food and deliver it out to different people as well, as well as the pads, as well as the activity packs. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was mad. It was mad. And then um, somebody rang me up and said, so about the year before COVID hit, somebody rang me up and said, Tina, I've got 10,000 uh, brand new school uniform sweatshirts from Marks and Spencers in a warehouse. Do you want them? And I went, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Never. Anyway. Two, <laughs> Never thought where I'd put them. Yeah. Three months <laughs> after COVID, it was like, oh, we've got these. Do you want to come and pick them up? I'm like, oh, my God. So anyway, I picked up the first, like, and there was how many pallet loads? Well, 40 pallet loads. God. I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this? But, the, and, you know, I'm thinking, right, they need to be on kids' backs. They're all brand new, mm. all different colors, all different sizes. So I picked up the first four pallet loads. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? So I rang up the council because he said I work in the council mm. and said and they had a big um warehouse where they were doing all the food parcels for all the you know the clinically vulnerable where they were delivering packs out uh, food packs and I said right I've got all these sweatshirts I said you know come and you work with me and help me like bring them from Clecky <laughs> <Yeah>. please <laughs> I said, you know, because we can we can get them out with healthy holidays. We can get them out with the packs and this. And they anyway, they basically said, yeah, we'll do it. We borrowed a load of racking, got load, um, got some people together, some drivers, and they brought them all back for me. Um, and yeah, we got them out ten thousand items, which was really good. And again, you know, that's partnership working, isn't it? Networking, knowing people. <laughs> if I don't know anybody, I'll know somebody who doesn't know. Mm. But I suppose look good on the council as well because they were part of it. And then we, mm. and you know, through lockdown and things, I've done a lot of um, um, so around with the around the period poverty and around the activity packs and the sweatshirts. We've had a, a, quite a lot of publicity, you know, saying this is what this is a positive thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I did, and I also did exercise in my street as well. Doesn't. Because I was like, you know, at the beginning, when it was really nice weather, I just thought, oh, I'm going to go out in the street. So my daughter-in-law's got, um, she had a, a car with a really good stereo. So mm. I messaged all my, my, my neighbours and said, right, I'm going to do some exercise. I'm going to do exercise at, right, at four o'clock on Tuesday, you know, Tuesday afternoon. And it was great when it was first lockdown. There's no cars anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, our street is a dead-end street anyway, but normally we have quite a few taxis coming up. But anyway, it was great. It works really well for about, four or five months yeah <laughs> so i did that as well so i was actually <laughs> never in the house would you believe yeah i mean did you that like 
<laughs> Were you working more or working less too long? Oh, I was working, working more. Working more. I was yeah. working 70 hours a week every day. Every yeah. single day I had something to do, something to pick up. And then I realized that people, you know, I mean, it was great because at the, at the time with the charity shops all closed and everything, people had loads of stuff they didn't want. Mm, yeah. You know, and I said, you know, I said to everybody, you know, make sure what you're giving me, you would use yourself. Yeah. You know, I don't want your sock drawers. I don't want your knicker drawers. Mm. I don't want your broken, crappy toys that you've had mm. in the cupboard. I want some, you know, I want half, you know, good condition. Yeah. And most of them were pretty good. I've had, I've had some crap, but <laughs> most of it was some pretty good quality. Um, but yeah, so it was. And so I was trying to do my day job. I was doing that. I was doing the period products. At one point with Freedom for Girls, we, we were running really, really low on pairing mm. products because the, the work, they couldn't get enough in. They were made, I think they're made in Eastern Europe somewhere. So there was a little bit of a an issue getting enough on the shelves. So nobody mm-hmm. was, because we get a lot of them donated, mm-hmm. the period products, which is really good. So from Body Form and Hey Girls and, you know, and, and also we have donation, donation stations in supermarkets and offices and everything like that. So that all went to pot because of COVID. You know, yeah. there's nobody in offices. You know, the, the supermarkets where we had donation stations, we can't do it because of COVID. Um, so, yeah, so all our stocks went really down. But then there was like, you know, went from 500 packs a month to 2,000 packs a month. So mm. we were really struggling at one point. But we got through it. We, we you know, we, we it was one of our other period uh, poverty charities sort of came to our rescue. So that was really good. So you're working more through lockdown. Was that like a more stressful period? Was it a more stressful period of work or was it just sort of getting on with it? Because you seem like maybe it's because you're not, you're not feeling hundred percent at the moment, but you seem like a really, really relaxed person that seems to kind of take things as they come. So was that just a matter of getting on with it or was it like, oh, God, you know, I've got to work all the hours that there are. There was just so much need out there. I couldn't stand it. You know, I've got three kids. I've, you know, I've struggled in my life, not as much as some of people out there, but I just thought, you know what? People need food. People need things. People need period products. People need, you know, help, you know, and, and I can do that. And that's what I did. And, you know, I always put myself in other people's shoes and think, well, actually, you know, I've, you know, not having anything for your kids, not even knowing where your next food's coming from, mm. you know, anything like that. It was a case of somebody has to do it. Mm. Well, I mean, there wasn't just me doing it. There was lots of yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing it. But uh, <laughs> not as much, I don't think as much as what I did because <laughs> I just went and diversed into everything. <laughs> uh, which sometimes, and then I went, um, then like people, then it, the, the thing is, when in when was it last June, something like that, I managed to get an electric van off the council because I was delivering food. Um, so I was delivering about two tons of food a week, as well as period products, as well as everything else, as well as my job, stuff like that. Um, so they gave me an electric van to use. Mm. And, and up until October, this October, it was free to charge. Mm. So that really helped. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't have done half of the stuff I did. So I was doing it on, on zero, zero carbon. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, that, I mean, yeah, I think if I'd have had my car, it wouldn't have lasted. But because I had this van, it, it really, it was just one of those things um, that really helped. And yeah. It still does today because I'm still using it. 
um, which has been amazing, you know. And it, it was a really good opportunity. And it's like every day, I mean, I've done, I think most people have done about 500 miles in their cars, haven't they, this year in the last day? I've done like 12,000 or something. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just locally, you know? So, yeah. So it's, work, it's been a workhorse. It's been good. And, you know, when people have needed furniture, kids haven't had beds, you no know, women playing from domestic violence who've got nothing, you know, we've, I've managed to get furniture and clothes and that. And, you know, people who've been moved into new flats off the streets and things like that, we managed to get them stuff. I mean, there's a lot of people doing all that stuff, but that's just an add-on really, if I can help people. The amount of um, uh, house clearances I've done is just re- re- ridiculous. I've been into some really nice houses got some really nice stuff <laughs> um you know for people and it's been great you know yeah. i mean the amount of beds that people give away that are absolutely crap and i have to take it straight to the tip but i can't say oh no this is shit i'm not gonna give you it <laughs> but um yeah so mm. but yeah so yeah so did you i mean i, I, I want to go down the route of sort of like valuable lessons from that i mean if you I would imagine being in public health as well, like before we went into lockdown, you'd be seeing a lot of information and, you know, having expectations of where that certain things will go and how certain things will happen. Um, and there's always a difference between what's imagined and what actually happens. But do you think through that process, do you think, do you think Leeds as a city has built more resilience from that because we had that? So more connections have been made and that there's a stronger network of support groups there now, or do you think that's just something that we had to, everyone kind of had to muddle through and it's like, you know, now we're getting back into, you know, back to normal for want of a better phrase. Um, I think, do you know what? Health inequalities have always been there. I've done the job for that long, you know, and like I say, I'm still doing stuff today that I was doing 13 years ago. You know, the, you know, you can live in Armley and you can live 12 years less than you can if you live in Old Woodley, you know, and, it's, and, and the gap is growing, you know, mm. uh, for your mortality rate, you know, which is not good really for health inequalities and the wider determinants like, you know, so if you think about like, you know, people who were on furlough, um, people were on zero hours contracts who didn't have any, you know, any money. You didn't, you know, um, I mean, even before that, people on zero hours contracts, people who were on universal credit, people had to wait five weeks for their cash and things like that. You know, people who didn't have any recourse to funds, all those people are still there before COVID, mm. you know, and it just got worse during covid but if you think about the people who were actually went on furlough um you know you got 80 percent of your salary now if 60 percent of your salary is on rent 20 percent are on bills where where's the other 20 percent yeah there wasn't any you know people weren't go to the doctors we were you know they, they were kept they kept saying you know we're still here we're not you know we're not, we're not not doing anything. We just have to do it online. But then, what happens when people can't go online? Because mm. they haven't got, you know, we've got digital exclusion, mm. massive digital exclusion. You know, people have got smartphones, but they haven't got enough for data. Yeah. Um, I mean, at one point in like October, November last year, I I managed to give out 120 laptops through the through the government scheme to all the people that I knew that needed them. 
But then I'm like, actually, that's fine. But what about the data? People need data. So they've mm. got some, um, thought, is it dongles, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. dongles to go with them. So the kids could actually, when we had the second lockdown, they could actually do work at home. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the health and the qualities, you know, the, you know, the, the wider determinants, which is like the, you know, the fuel poverty and the food poverty and things like that, not just the health inequalities where, you know, smoking and drinking and, and physical activity is the wider, the wider issues, you know, and if it, maybe you're living in an overcrowded house and one of you has got COVID, where, where's the other five, six people going to go, you know? Um, so I think, um, I think the networking and working together has, has helped because, you know, um, I don't know about your, where you live, but we had like a, a neighborly COVID WhatsApp group. Mm. Now in some communities, they're really good and it's mostly people who are, um, I don't know, not, you know, working class people, middle-class people who've got that mm. sort of facility. But if you're living in the middle of Hangels and you've got like, you know, 15 people in your street who all, you know, who all speak different languages. It's very, very yeah. difficult to have that support. Yeah. Um, I mean, we found that, you know, there was a lot of mental health issues going on with people in culturally diverse communities because they were, you know, they were just cut off from everything. Yeah. They didn't yeah. have, they didn't have the money for the phones. They didn't have the money for the data. They didn't, they just had to stay in, you know? Mm. Um, and then they didn't have to, you know, claim for things and things like that. So, it was very, very, it was, it's very disjointed. You know, the, I think the poor got poorer and the rich got richer, basically, because the rich yeah. people who, who, you know, they weren't going out, so they saved loads of money. Yeah. <laughs> the poor people were just like, oh my God, where's my, you know, I worked in like three food banks, or I still do. And we were getting like, I mean, even last week, we were getting through the door in an hour and a half, 90 people feeding 422 people, you know? And that's what we were getting through lockdown. You know, we had to do again that differently where, you know, instead of people coming in, we had to stay at the door giving people food parcels. And there was so many mm. more and more. And it's, it's getting that way again now. Now the £20 uplift's gone from universal credit. Mm. Um, and also, you know, your electric bills are going to go high, sky high. But that's in the future. We're talking about the past. <laughs> I mean, do, do you think a lot of that is just, do you think that's invisible to a lot of people? I mean, you know, not just because it's not sort of in the media. People will hear about food banks or know about food banks, but they're not sort of present in the popular consciousness, I don't think. Like, so I was going to say something along the lines of, uh, like, you know, it's kind of, there are levels of like, you know, sort of Victorian poverty, but because the fashions are different and the litter on the street's different and the the pollutants in the air are different. It's kind of like, oh, well, it's not the same. I mean, do you think that, think that's fair or do you think like, well, why isn't it, why isn't it more visible? Um, it, I don't know why. I think it's, it's still a massive stigma around it as well. You know, about people going to food banks and things like that. People don't want to talk about it. You know, when the press come to me and said, oh, can I speak to somebody who uses a food bank or who's suffering period poverty or something like that? We always get that in the media. Yes. Um, it's really difficult. And I think is it makes for, I don't know, over the last four years since I've been doing, you know, the, um, freedom for girls and things like that it, it's almost it, I, you know it sounds awful but it's almost like a 
it comes in trend and goes out trend depending yeah. what 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 the actual world situation is at, at the moment and whether mm. whether it's um something's triggered something off do you know what I mean it's it's quite yeah. it's quite interesting the way the media work yeah and it's quite interesting the way the government work as well when when mm. they're asked about things like you know they totally don't get the question do you know what i mean if they're saying why is all you know 1.9 million people accessing food banks last year well we're you know well we've you know like i suppose as an example well we've given them an extra 20 quid a, a week what do you what do you want us to do you know mm. it's almost like brushing it off that it's actually not a, a big problem it is only for a, a very small minority of people mm. actually it's not it's like quite a big you know and and i suppose it is it is that sort of thing that it's, it's it's very sad to talk about um but it needs to be almost like turned around into a positive that actually you know people are helping it's the you know the food mm. banks that are helping these people and i think if I'd, for me I, it feels like it's it, it's sometimes they don't the press don't want to you know they don't want to report on it because it's not too much of a downer yeah yeah exactly well no because all all News is down or in it anyway. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. There's no. There's no viscera, is there? They're not. Like, there's not bodies on the floor that they can go. No, there's no murder. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> no crash or there's no. You know. Yeah. So yeah. So I think it's it's quite a small thing, and, and I mean, it's been really good with like the media in Leeds. So like, I'm, I've got quite a good um, relationship with Radio Leeds and BBC and people like that. And they've been really good at reporting what I've been doing. Mm. It's just getting it into the news and saying, yeah, please do help people. Please, you know, do um, donate period pads and please do donate, you know, like food and things like that. Mm. Um, I mean, we are, you know, I think, is England one of the most charitable countries in the world, aren't they, for giving money to charity? Um, but yeah, I think... People still don't realise that, you know, what do you mean you can't afford 50p for a pack of period products? But actually, if you're living on nothing, you know, zero, mm. you know, money, that's why you can't afford them. Or actually, if you give me those period pads, I can then spend that 50 pence on a loaf of bread to feed my kids. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm on the streets and, I, you know, I've got nowhere to live. How am I going to, yeah, I can't claim for any money. Mm. You know, I'm a failed asylum seeker or I've got no resource to funds because, you know, um, I am here, but I can't go back to where I am. So I'm in limbo and and I get £27 a week and actually um, I can't use that towards hygiene products. You know, I'm in a HMO, which is like a, you know, a massive, it's like a, what's it called? I don't remember how it, it's um, lots of people who live together. Right. Um. So, you know, like multiple occupancy, so lots right. of, you know, and, and there's nowhere to go. And, you know, I, my job's gone because, because of COVID, you know, all the, all the people who were doing cash in hand work, you know, all, you know, like if you think about in Leeds and cross green, all the warehouses and things like that, people were doing yeah. jobs in there. They all went and they were all zero hours contracts or, you know, cash. Yeah. I see them all. Or casual or temporary or, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Again, I keep coming back to the, you know, the women fleeing domestic violence. They flee with nothing, you know, just with the clothes they're standing on. You know, women coming out of prison, things like that. They've got nowhere to go. They've got nothing, you know, um, no money. They have to, you know, apply for everything. Mm. So there is, you know, a lot of people out there. But because it's the minority and it's not the majority, 
people just don't, you know, and it, it could happen to anybody really. You know, people can, you know, lots of people have lost their jobs, but. Do you think we should get into Freedom for Girls then at this point? You can do, yeah. Do you want to take us through the story of that, how you started it and yeah. how long it's been going, where you got into it? Yeah. I can, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Freedom for Girls started around about six or seven years ago, probably six years ago now, when a friend of mine asked me if, randomly if I wanted to go to Kenya because um, she was going to set up a project um, around um, the prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV, totally random to what I was doing. Mm. Um, she worked in public health as well, and my kids were growing up. And I said, "Oh yeah, I'll come and uh, you know." She said, "Will you come with me?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll come with you, like you do." <laughs> Just thought about it for about a main second. Like, oh yeah, I've never done that before. I'm going to Africa, thinking, "Oh my God, what have I done?" And anyway, so <laughs> I did. This. So we went over there, and I was doing that, helping her with that project for a couple of years. And she was a midwife, and she she was doing. Um, old stuff and I was doing all the back office stuff um and after a couple of two or three times of going there I just thought I need to do something else this you know I'm bored it, it doesn't float my boat so I looked around and I loved the people and I loved the country and I looked mm. around and, I, and, and um, a different projects to do and then I because I was going to do something with sport and physical activity mm. um this is you know I raised some money for to um renovate a football pitch in a school and I managed to get some uniform, uniform, some football boots and football kit people have donated to me. But then I found out that 60% of girls and women didn't have access to safe period protection, safe, you know, um, sanitary towels or period products or anything like that. And they use their ash and dung and bits out their mattresses. Mm. You know, they use paper and leaves or just sat in the hole. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is awful. And I remember back when I was 11 years old and I started my period on French exchange trip. And um, I was going, you know, I was going to France. I was 11. I didn't speak French. And then my, um, my French exchange was a boy and he had three brothers. And I just spent the week, you know, using toilet paper, sleeping on the floor because I didn't want to ruin the French lovely beautiful friendship yeah and i just and that that was 40 odd years before and i just thought you know what these girls they've got this every month you know i remember mm. this like it was yesterday and this, yeah, is, yeah. this is why i want to work on this is what i'm going to do so i um came back from a visit in kenya and thought what right this is what i'm going to do looked around at different models of work and got my friends together one Saturday afternoon and said, right, we're going to make period products out of sheets and towels. And so I got them all in a, a church. <laughs> my community development coming alive again. <laughs> um, so the old brother sewing machines just did them off. I haven't used this for years and tried to make these really awful period products, these you know, reusables. Because I reckon that we couldn't just do one-use products over there. It was, only, mm. it was not environmentally friendly. There was 2,000 mm. kids to two holes in the ground. Mm. You know, giving them one-use products will not do anything. It, it won't sustain, you know, them for, you know, more than a month and you have to keep, you know, keep supplying them. Yeah. Um, and I also realized that um, they had no information around menstrual health management, so no education on that, apart from the science thing. And most girls didn't even get to um, far as far in school to actually learn about that. Mm. So they, a lot of them dropped out. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so we did these um, washable reusables, and I ended up throwing them all away because it was 
more all about. And then I looked around at different models of work and, and realized that you know, a few people have worked on it. And I found this organization's charity in the US who, who'd been around a few years and like perfected a washable reusable pad and perfected uh, mental health management education. Um, got in touch with them. And at first, what I did is I ordered some just to see what they were like. So I went out with them. And then in between that time, um, I put what we'd done on Facebook and said what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, I hadn't even thought of the name Freedom for Girls. I just thought I'm just going to work on this myself as a small project. And um, so a friend, um, friend's family had seen this on Facebook and got in touch with me and said, oh, this is a really good idea. Um, we've got like a, a fund. Do you want to apply for some funding to do this? Because we, we you know, we're really interested in Kenya and also WASH, which is, you know, like water and sanitation and health. Um, so projects in Kenya. So I applied for like about five grand or something to set up a project. So I went over to set up this project and then went over Kenya for three weeks. And I managed to, so I took some of these packs over there and I said to this lady, I said, oh, this seems just, I said, oh, here's a, here's a pack. Do you think you can make that? And she went away and an hour later she came back and it was perfect and said, right, that's great. So I sort of like ordered some, we ordered some sewing machines and some material. Um, we realized that um, you can't do that deck by, by PowerPoint in the middle of nowhere. So we actually, what we did is with our educational materials, we blew them up into like um, sort of poster size um, made out of form banner materials. So we could just mm. you know, put them on, you know, um, blackboards and things like that. So that's, I suppose, how I started, just as a small, and I think the first, first lot of money we made about, we made about 500 packs or something, but these are packs lasted three years. Mm. And so it was really sustainable. So that, you know, it was a good bit of education for skills. The attainment level was low, you know, their, their truancy level was high. They missed three months of school every, you know, a lot of girls actually dropped out of school as well. Um, when when they started their periods, because they were so embarrassed, the massive stigma to do. They were using rags; they leaked everywhere. Mm. They were, you know, I remember once the when we delivered some of these packs to a school, you know, the, the head teacher said, "Look out there!" She said, "Nobody's shuffling." All the girls used to shuffle around because they had a rag between their legs. You know, yeah, worried. We're more worried about what was happening down there than what's happening on you know in, in yeah the yeah yeah so they weren't even you know even if they did go a lot of girls sleeping with men to get money to buy pads so that we go to school because they realize that education is the key um and then they'd get pregnant and you know awful things yeah. happen like that um so yeah so that's how that started that's how freedom for girls started um and then in 2017 um it it's a bit mad, really. Um, so I've just been doing it for a couple of years and getting bits of funding, still going over, you know, paying for it all myself. I've got a blood on um, credit card the size of a mortgage, the amount of time. I've been. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so in 2017, um, a, a colleague of mine rang me up and said, oh, Tina, I know what you're doing in Kenya. It's really good. I've got five girls here in my school um, and they are missing school every month because they're, you know, they've got uh, an issue with buying pads, you know, or one of them, one of the girls doesn't even know that she's having a period. She's been having a period 
two years and she didn't even know what it was. Um, and I said, okay, right, let me see what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so just through a series of events and, and conversations, I ended up going on um, Radio Leeds and talking about it. And Radio Leeds actually managed to get an interview with the girls. And they were saying, you know, that we're using toilet paper and socks and things like that. And obviously, that was really heart-rendering. It was awful, really, you know. Um, and I met the girls, actually, and he asked her, this, you know, afterwards. So from that little interview with Radio Leeds, I then, it then got onto the BBC News website. Mm. And then it got into the Metro. And then the whole world's press descended on me. I mean, basically, the whole world descended on me. How can there be period poverty in the sixth biggest economy in the world? Mm. And um, we, I think it was the top read most article on the BBC News website for four days. Mm. Um, I then got invited on Woman's Hour and spoke to, you know, spoke to them on Woman's Hour. Um, which made it even worse because then it was like even more people wanted to speak to me. And what I, what I, so I was trying to make it more positive, really. Say, well, not positive, just like because there was no there was no research, there was nothing at all about mm. anything. So you know, it was a massively new thing, but it, it was also a big news story as well. People yeah. thought I was a big organisation. It was only me. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was really and and so I I put it down to. You know, at the time, I think it was one, you know, the, remember I, Daniel Blake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, so the girl went to the food bank and she had some period products and there wasn't anybody. Any, yeah. So that was before I came along because nobody thought food banks, people, there was no hygiene poverty, it was just food poverty, but actually it wasn't. It's always been hygiene poverty. So I sort of used my public health flight hat on and said, you know, this is the reason. This is, you know, you have to wait five weeks for universal credit. You know, there's refugees, there's asylum seekers, people fleeing domestic violence. You know, putting it in context that actually this is happening here because of this, 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 and this. Mm. You know, and and girls and the stigma and taboo around periods as well. Um, and yeah, it was madness. Honestly, I had people from Denmark, Korea, Australia. I was in the New York Times. I was, oh, it was just mental. And and then I got, it's quite funny, the day after. And what happened was the day before I'd, I went on Woman's Hour, I, I messaged my um, my, mani- my manager and the head of Leeds City Council to say, I'm just giving you the heads up, but I'm going on to Woman's Hour tomorrow and this is what I'm talking about. Mm. Anyway. When it happened and when it hit, I got hauled into the office of the director of public health and he went, what are you doing? What do you mean? What do you think you're doing? I said, there's a process. I said, what do you mean there's a process? What have you done? I said, what do you mean what have I done? I said, I've done an interview. I actually did email and tell you, but you haven't told anybody. Um, and he, I said, I said, you know what? I said, I've done nothing wrong. I said, you've got an issue with the subject, not the process. Yeah. And I just walked out. So, what are you going to do? You can't sack me because I've brought this to the attention of the world. Well, it wouldn't be good optics. No, not at all. Especially when you're on the media set. I've just lost my job at. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was quite funny because at the time, um, I was on a hotline to the head of communications every day of Leeds City Council. Hmm. And, you know, the, like the 
the director at the time, the director of communications, kept ringing me up saying, and so is there anybody else who can do the interview? I went, no, because I'm the only person. <laughs> I am freedom for girls. I am the organisation. I am the organisation. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I don't think they could believe that, you know, one person could make such an impact in the whole wide world. <laughs> so so basically, yeah, I, that's what I did. I put period poverty on the map for a lot of people. You know, so like Amika George, who's she heard me on Woman's Hour and she ended up doing free periods and we we ended up doing the campaign to get free period projects in schools. Mm. Um, Celia, um, who runs Hey Girls UK, she listened to me um, on Woman's Hour and she set up a company that makes organic products now and she said, buy one, donate one, which is fantastic. We did the first period poverty summits in twenty. 17, I think if you have October 2017, Plan International did a massive research with young girls from eight, uh, from 13 to 25 and found that one in 12 girls had issues with period poverty. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what happened. So, have you learned anything about, from, uh, you know, <laughs> like... About you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I <either. laughs> I don't. I don't think that'd help you. I think no, <laughs> it'd no, stop you from doing what you have managed to achieve. So. Yeah, I mean, this is it's quite interesting actually. You know, how it's um, how it's manifested into from you know just that little thing in Kenya to actually this organisation that we're running today, which is still very small, mm. but obviously we're very well known. But yeah, so we've like diversified now. We don't just do Kenya, obviously we do the UK as well. I mean, we mostly deliver to around about 100 organisations in Leeds. We have an education section where we deliver education. We've got Black Women's Menstrual Health Research Project going on. We do sewing workshops. We always did sewing workshops where I set up sewing workshops in the local community where people can make the pads that I can then take extra pads yeah. to take to Kenya and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I, we always did that as well. Um, so, yeah. You mentioned the sustainability and, and making the period products in Kenya sustainable. I mean, what are your thoughts and opinions? Have you learned much about, you know, the, the Western disposability and the amount of the amount of products that we go through and oh gosh, yeah. I mean, we, we are that could be altered to be more sustainable. Oh, but absolutely. COP26. Yeah. I mean, there's more period products found on beaches. I think it's the second mm. most found thing on the beach. Yeah. You know, I mean, one packet of pads, I think is equivalent to about three plastic bags, which is mm. really bad. I mean, we're actually just launching a campaign called making the switch. So we, because, Unfortunately, sustainable products like menstrual cups, washable reusables, period pants, things like that, they're very expensive. Mm. People can't afford them. You know, people who need them every day, they can't afford them. So we've been doing... And higher maintenance as well, because you've got to be hygienic with them, because you're not just throwing them away. So you've got to... Absolutely, yeah. And you have to wash them or whatever. But, you know, they're they're really good products nowadays, and they are very quick drying. So it's not Mm. as if... You know, you have to hang them out. The, you know, the, the the technology with these products nowadays are really good. And mm. like cups last ten years, cups last four years. Um, you know, the washable reusables last three or four years if you, you know use them properly. And just throw them in the washing machine, so it's not an issue. Mm. Um, 
So yeah, we what we're trying to do at the moment is get people to make the switch to these sustainable products because we have quite a few that you know we can donate to people. So we're asking mm. them, you know, if you if you want to try some, you know, and you can't afford them, why don't you try them? You know, yeah. we we've been doing this with pants um, quite um, over lockdown, and people love them. I mean, I know it sounds a bit weird, period pumps, but they, they actually don't leak and they're actually really good. You wouldn't know to none, but and I wouldn't know because I, I started this project, went into the menopause, so <laughs> I don't use things, <laughs> which is a bit weird as well. But yeah, um, so yeah, we want to go down that sustainable route because obviously, you know, ecologically and environmentally, mm. one-use products are just not unless they are organic. Mm. which there is a lot of organic, more and more organic companies coming on board now. Um, they're not good for the planet at all. And as well, if you're dealing with the poverty issue in the first place, you know, most of those sustainable solutions are all going to be more expensive. So they're going to be more out of reach than the... Which is why we're doing, yeah, which is why we're doing the make switch so people who can't afford them can have a chance to, you know, mm-hmm. see if they like them. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is all good. Um, and, you know... And actually, if you look at, well, we, you know, like, you, you know, you look at what in the back of packets and things like that, what's what the ingredients is, actually, they don't have to do that on a period, you know, on one use products. And actually some of the, some of the, um, the chemicals that put in, you know, like period products, one use period products are not very nice. They're bleachy, they're all white, the bleach. Not yeah. And, you know, and they don't have to put what's in them. It's yeah. things in them unfortunately which is why we need to you know like move over to you know more sustainable products yeah uh, i was just going to say and we just show my ignorance is there still vat on sanitary products no no that right, was so a, the- that was a, an eu derivative that was going to be removed anyway yeah. and actually years ago most of the supermarkets moved removed the vat on them anyway so it, it it didn't make an ounce of difference. They used to the government saying, "Oh, we're fantastic. We've removed it." But it yeah. was going. We couldn't remove it until we came out of the EU anyway. So, um, but yeah. So and it doesn't make a lot of difference. Pets. So they made it a big thing, and it wasn't really. Mm. Even though that it shouldn't have been, it's not a luxury product. Yeah. You know, why? Why did we have essential? Why? Yeah. Why? why yeah. It's a, it's a basic human right, or it is a human right. If you haven't got access to safe period products. You can't function properly, you know. Um, it should be up there with you know everything else that's you know a, a human right. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is. You know, half the population menstruating is still the most taboo subject that we talk about ever. Mm. Um, and why is that? You know, because people have never talked about it. Um, which I mean, we are talking. When I started in twenty seventeen, you know, it was like a big thing. I remember being on was it Good Morning Britain and it was the first time they'd ever shown a menstrual cup. People didn't even know what it was and we're waving it about going, look, this is a menstrual cup. <laughs> yeah, so it's educated people over the different products that are available. And people still said, oh, you know, we don't know what period poverty is, what even is it, you know, or mm. the new word is um, menstrual equity. <laughs> so, I mean, I've never liked the word period poverty. It's almost like poverty. Yes, we know people are poor, but actually it's not their fault most of the time you know it's just the way they the way you know what's happened you know yeah but you've got to use language in a way that it sticks in people's brains as well don't yeah. in a way that the media can sell it and uh, yeah it is it's very much um 
they they call it sound bites, don't they? Oh, that's a good sound bite. Mm. <laughs> it's like, is it? Okay, that's fine. Ah. Um, so again, with an assumption, I'm guessing that when you did the media round, the majority of people that were coming to interview you were women, you know, being a women's hour and so on. I'm guessing there was at least one guy. So what I'm getting towards is like, what, what was it like having that first male journalist go through? Well, it was, it, it's quite interesting actually, because, um, the first journalist actually big one was from iNews. Right. Um, and he was really, he was really good actually. And he said, I'm really sorry. I don't know anything about anything. Just, you know, talk me through it. And it was really interesting. Um, I went on the Jeremy Vine show after woman's hour. I'd, I'd done all, uh, they got in touch with me and said, do you want to do it? And I'm like, oh my God, Jeremy Vine is going to pull me to pieces. <laughs> anyway, he didn't. He was really good. I said, look, I want, you know, you need to make this interview positive rather than negative. And, you know, anyway, it's quite funny because um, he, got, he got really embarrassed actually. And, uh, you know, the first thing I said, you know, thank you, Jeremy, for letting me come and talk about, a, you know, really taboo subject uh, to a man, you know. Mm. Um, and then we started talking about something and then I said, um, I said, you, cause I, I, I sort of researched him and he had two daughters. I said, you've got two daughters. Have they started their periods yet? And have you, have you spoken to them about it? That's not my job. Why, why Jeremy, why is that not your job to talk about, you know, pe- you know, periods and, and, and break that taboo. You need to do that. You need to sort of educate yourself because actually if we don't break that stigma, it's always going to be there. Mm. And he didn't want to stay. <laughs> it was quite funny. I was on Radio Five Live as well, and that was. And I, I think I stumped another guy, quite, quite a famous um, journalist. I can't remember who it was, but yeah, but yeah, I think they, they were. You know, the men that I who interviewed me were quite like, ooh, cringe. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. Yeah, I've I've done them all. It's quite funny, really. You get used to them. I think it's partly. You know, because they don't have an example of how, how to react, how to behave. It's that not having a model of how to respond. Exactly. It's kind of like, they've got no so however I respond is my genuine response. I'm not, I'm not performing yeah. that response. Yeah. I mean, it was really, really difficult at first because there was no research. Nobody, you know, he was like, oh my God, this is a big thing. No research. I had, is it, what's the name? Hartley Brewer. What's her yeah, name? Yeah, Julia. Yeah. So basically she decimated me because i didn't even know who she was she was absolutely oh she was horrible she was absolutely awful she just slated me saying how do you know this period but i can't believe people can't afford 50p for a packet of products well there's a lot she can't believe no well exactly and <laughs> um and it's really funny because I've, I've done it on a, on a, a lunch i just finished a meeting and and all the the, the researchers said to me is oh she's a bit shouty that's all she said. I went, oh, well, I can, I can deal with shouty. But I just like, she's going, there's no, I said, well, what? you know, I was saying, well, what about people in, you know, who are homeless or people who've got no recourse to, no, there's nobody like that. You know, it's like, and then she, the tweets, she tweeted saying, I, I decimated Tina Leslie on free, but, you know, freedom for girls. And, oh God, it was just like, and the, you know, the amount of like negative things that the, the put about her mm. <laughs> rather than me. So that was the only ever negative interview I had, mm. apart from being pulled into the director of public health and being told that <laughs> no such thing as period poverty. <laughs> Quite an adventure, really, from 
Yes. Just, oh, I want to do something for myself while I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of a journey. It's been a bit of a journey, been ma- well, massive journey and a lot of hard work. But he's, mm. I, I suppose you've got to be passionate about things to do them and to do them. You know, I mean, yeah. Mm. And you know, 800 million women in this world don't have access. You know, we need to, you know, not have that anymore. You know, and still we're banging on about it in 2021 and there's still stigma and taboo about it. And still, you know, people are saying, oh, yes, we're going to, I mean, even the government actually said, oh, we're going to eradicate period poverty by 2030. But actually, you're not because how are you going to eradicate period poverty? Well, if you're not doing anything other than releasing press releases, then you're not going to do anything. No. And, and basically, you know, people say, oh, how are they going to do that? I said, they're not because actually you need to tackle poverty. So mm. poverty is here. And then mm. you have all the umbrellas, you know, we're just, you know, that's the, that's the umbrella and there's period poverty, food poverty, fuel poverty, digital poverty, mm. whatever, underneath that. Mm. So until you tackle the actual poverty issue, you're not going to tackle anything else. And that's the issue. And so people can say false promises forever. Um, and it's, you know, until we actually tackle that issue, it's still, we're still going to have it. I mean, we're, we're actually, I'm part of um, the, glo- of the first global period poverty forum that we're going to like, we're going to do a big um, conference next year in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so bringing like lots of people together. Um, so yeah, that would be quite interesting. But again, you know, it's like, why don't we bring some of these governments to book that have said they're going to tackle period poverty and say, actually, what have you done so far? <laughs> mm-hmm. Nothing. You've just said it a little bit like, um, yeah, some governments that we don't. Like most things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they can just say it they don't have to do it yeah you know you know, I, you know I think over you know time you just actually realize it's all hot air mm. Mm. i'd like to know where the two, 250 million pound is that they they pledged to tackle period poverty in the uk mm. in 2018 to 2019 so we were on the um the, they did a task force, you know, they like these task forces, the mm-hmm. government, don't they? So we were on the government task force for access mm-hmm. um, and we had to go down to London to the Department of Education once a month mm-hmm. and talk about access. There was access, there was research, there was um, something else, I can't remember, there was like three tasks. And it took me six months to get my rail fare back. We had to go to mm-hmm. it for an hour, you know, so there was all the big companies like Lulets and Procter and & Gamble and, you know, people like that and there was like you know and then they they wanted little organizations like us to pay f- you know for ourselves to go down to london and then not yeah. pay us back our train fare and have yeah. to take a day out of work and things like that well that's how that's how poverty works as well though isn't it it's like if you if you're rich if you're loaded everything's paid for for you you get everything laid on you go wherever you want to go uh if you're not you pay for everything everywhere everything pay for it all even to the point of like you know, if you look, you can tell an area from when they've not got any cash machines that don't charge you. If all the cash machines charge you, you know you're in a poor area and there's all just betting shops everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you go to Hair Hills, it's right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All, all they do is betting shop, betting shop, charge charge cash points, charge cash points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lost licenses. Mm. <laughs> off license betting shop, off license betting shop. <laughs> Um, okay, so while we're on happy subjects, let's do Brexit. <laughs> well, I don't really, I'm not really political, but yeah. It's more in, will it or has it affected your work? Um, well, 
No, not as no. yet. Right. Brexit, no, because a lot of um, the stuff we do is not really. I think if we were we were doing stuff in Europe and things like that, maybe shipping stuff to Europe or doing something like that, it may be affect us. Because I've t- I've spoken to other, you know people who friends who do uh, a lo- load of like sustainability stuff and and artist work and things like mm. that who send stuff to Europe and they just can't anymore because it's too expensive. Mm. But for us, um, at the moment, we've not really had any issues I can think of. I mean, just from a freedom for girls perspective, I mean, I don't know. I don't know why you would, but you might have numbers on sort of what the manufacturing capacity in the UK is for sanitary products or how many factories we have. Or, you know, like if there's just one factory and that closes down, and then we have to get things through Europe and then we can't get them anymore. Do, do you know what I mean? These, yeah. these sort of things that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Because we get a lot of our stuff donated. Mm. We, I mean, like I say, we, we did have an issue early on last year, even before Brexit. You know, but that was because of lockdown, not mm. because of. So we've had quite a flow of, you know, period products. Um, and we haven't had that issue. But, may, you know, I suppose you need to speak to the companies who do the manufacturing yeah yeah yeah. um but yeah i don't know i mean i know people who send stuff to europe what they do is they send it out the eu Mm. and then they have to send it into europe because it's just too expensive to ship Mm. um but yeah for for freedom for girls we've not had any issues okay so let's do a little bit on social media i bet freedom for girls has been a massive education in social media for you or, yeah. Or if you're not really dealt with it, if you had other people doing that. Oh, or... well, I was doing all the social media. Oh my God. It, it, I spent hundreds of hours a week on social media doing, mm. you know, like retweeting and doing, because it is your shop window. You know, yeah. I mean, there is like, we have a team of people now, which is quite nice. And we, we actually were waiting. We need, we just lost a social media person and we need to recruit another one. Mm. Um, like six hours a week but i when i when i first did it i thought you know what i need to you know it's our shop window if we if nobody knows about us so yeah. as, you know i set we set up twitter we set up you know facebook we've got instagram we have now a, a great website that shiona um one of our operations ladies set up and she's brilliant but we, you know, everything's like blind. We didn't, I didn't even know how to set up a charity. Do you know what I mean? I just thought, mm. you know, after it all hit in 2017, I thought, shit, we need to like be a charity, not just an organization. Mm. Cause I was just the name. Yeah. You know? It wasn't a charity. And, that, and what I was doing is I was umbrellaing under another person's charity. Yeah. And I bet you were getting donations and stuff. Well, you know, because you were on the news, people will be sending yeah. things or offers or whatever yeah so what i did is i i set up a like a gofundme page and mm. got quite a lot of money and um ch- i mean remember change.org like yeah it's got three grand for us you know I'm like oh what, what to do yeah so yeah it was yeah it was all a bit weird so it's all a bit blind leading the blind at first mm. but then I, like i say i know that i what, what i can do and what i can't do so we got i got a board of trustees we, we, we managed to get the charity up and running in 2018 March 2018. Um, yeah, and, and I think I know it sounds awful, but we, we've we've been really lucky over lockdown. People have been donating, you know, money to us, which has been great. So we can still carry on our work in Kenya, and we do Uganda now, and also in the UK as well. Mm. So we, you know, people can't do things for nothing. Yeah, for long because you just yeah. lose them. 
you know, and it's, it's a really big issue that needs addressing. So, uh, and people understand that and they're really, they're really, um, uh, what's the word? Generous is the word. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, and it's, it's really good. I mean, we've had people shaving their hairs, hair off and jumping out of planes for us and stuff, which has been great. Uh, but yeah, social media is your shop window, isn't it? People don't even have to look at your website. They just look at your Instagram posts or your yeah. you know, Facebook posts about, you know, and we are very much a grassroots organization. You know, we do a lot of stuff. We're not just an activist site where it's just, it's all talk. We're actually action mm -hmm. as well. Um, I mean, this year we won the Queen's Award for volunteering, mm -hmm. uh, which is like an MBE for the charity. You know, and only being two years old, that's a massive accolade that I've actually got signed a signed certificate by the Queen over there, <laughs> uh, and a, a plaque. Um, let me show you. Yeah. Oh gosh. So look. Very nice. And then, and then a signed a signed thing by the Queen. Uh -huh. yeah. So yeah, all very nice. But, um, you know, for her to actually acknowledge that there's penury poverty is quite interesting being 94 years old. But yeah, and, and also I think um, Amika George, who set up three periods and a couple of other people, they got MBEs. I, you know, I was more, I was happy that the charity have got that, you know, because we, it shows that, and then we, we got a, a special uh, dispensation for that uh, work over COVID as well. Mm. So yeah, that's quite good. Yeah, that's good. They all, you know, they make for good press releases for you guys, don't they? Yeah, it did. Yeah, we had we had a bit of a celebration event, which was nice. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we had the press there and things like that because it's not about us. It's about the people we represent. And I've always said that it's not about me. It's not about what I do. You know, I. You know, it's about the people who have got no voice. But that's the difficult thing. We love to personify things. And if it's just, you know, like, and you know it from social media as well, you know, like the posts with people and faces get the most traction. Mm -hmm. And because we want to, we want to engage with other people. So, you know, mm -hmm. you, you end up having, or someone ends up having to become, you know, the ambassador or the face of, of the brand or of the, yeah. of the, um, issue or the topic. It's just, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That was Which is not what people always want to do. Face everyone. Yeah. And now it's really hard, especially in lockdown when you couldn't buy any blooming makeup. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. You're just going to get me. Um, but yeah, it was quite funny. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It's um, you know, because I, I asked, you know, because we've got a bit of a team, and I guess say, so, right, who wants to do, you know media no i'm not doing it i'm not doing it so i end up having to do it <laughs> you know, leslie founder of freedom for girls you know but uh, you know but at the end of the day i've done so many of them i suppose that it just um and also i realized really early on that you just have to say the same thing because actually yeah. it, it is yeah. what it is you know and but not everybody knows it and because at first I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? You know, yeah, you want to keep it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But actually you don't need to, because you are just telling the news, you know. Yeah. And you're trying to reach new people. So you're just saying the same message. Yeah, you have yeah. to. Yeah. And then the, the, that was quite interesting. I remember sat next to somebody at work in, when I was in public health and said to them, I said, right, I'm on woman's hour tomorrow. What do you suggest? 
what do you what do you suggest? Yeah, have you got any tips for me? She said, just stick to three things, just three mm. things, and you'll be fine. Um, and then it was really funny because about a week later, about a week later, I was sat next to this guy and on the train. I was going to London. Mm. I sat on the train and we got chatting. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm from Freedom for Girls and stuff like that. He said, oh, I heard that interview. Where where was your media training? I went, oh, this woman who was sat next to me. <laughs> I said, you did a really good interview on him. And he was head of Virgin Media. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, credit cards or something. <laughs> Sorry. So I must have done something right. But I just said it from the heart. Do you know what I mean? And, well, and also, you worked in call centers for years. You know how to field questions. You know how to deal with inquiries. You yeah. You know, it. It's yeah. natural. Um, okay, so we'll cover quite a lot. I, I mean, I was going to ask you questions about sort of what you changed, but I think I'm going to go straight into UBI, so universal basic income. If there was a universal basic income, if you were paid, you know, enough money to live on, and I expect I know the answer to this question, <laughs> would you still work is the first part of the question. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You'd get bored otherwise, wouldn't you? Uh, oh my God. Me, yeah. Asking me that question is just a no. It's just like, what? You want me to sit home and do nothing? It's driven me mad having to stay in here for three, four days, five days. You know, I mean, you should see like, I've got, you know, this here is all the stuff that I need to like, I'm trying to delegate out. Just for anyone listening, that was a big ream of papers. <laughs> the team is waving at me. It's, yeah. Thinking, how am I going to delegate all this? Because I can't get out my front door I'm not allowed out it's really difficult you know when you're trying to trying to you've done people favors all through you know for the last year and 18 yeah. months and then it's like excuse me can you just nip to do this for me no i haven't got time it's like mm, well i've done this this and this for you you know Ugh, anyway yeah but you must be more than used to that of like you must yeah. as well have a mental you know kind of like they will do they will return the favor they won't return the favor yeah okay yeah, but they will make an excuse. Yeah. Oh, I fell asleep. I'm sorry. I couldn't do it. I'm like, okay, then that's fine. It is very difficult because it really pisses me off. Excuse my language. I don't know if I can swear, but that's, <laughs> but yeah, see, it, is, it, it really bugs me that actually I've, you know, run around for you and you can't do one thing for me. But anyway, mm. it is what it is. My friend's just sold up everything and she's going to go live in a camper van. I think that's mm. fantastic. But she's, you know, she's worked all her life. She's, you know, she's like 62. She's mm. got a good pension. So that's what she wants to do. And she's always wanted to do it. And that's what she's worked for. Mm. Um, but I just, you know, and good honor. You know, I think it's really great. And a few of my friends want to do that. Just, you know, up and sell everything up and go on the road. Mm. Um, but yeah. It doesn't appeal to me having been in a van on the road. Especially in this, <laughs> especially in this weather. Oh, oh. I know exactly. I mean, you know, they've all got really posh, you know, camper vans with like heating and stuff. But you know, yeah, yeah. that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. But I, you know, I, I just, I think I've been put on this earth to help people, and that's what you know, and and that's what I like doing. You know, and I'm passionate about things, and that's what I'll do. And mm. um, I think, you know, there's always somebody worse off than you and you put yourself in that, that person's shoes and just try and help them. And that's what I do. Um, yeah. And sometimes, you know, some people, I mean, somebody said to me, um, you know, what they say, you know, sometimes people are, are 
are cash rich and time poor. Mm. Um, she's, but you know, your time, you know, your, your time rich, well, I'm not time rich, but yeah, as in, I will help go out my way and help people, mm. you know, um, and, and I will, because that's what I'm like. Um, so yeah, I think it's just things that I do. And I, and I think maybe I have got ADHD and I, and somebody said to me, you know, what you do is you channel your energies into positive things rather than negative mm. things. So not disruptive. Mm. So, you know, my, like that, my sitting down all day, does my head in, you know, I can't Yeah, you know, like even sat here for however long it is. I'm thinking, oh my God, I've got like a big long list of people. <laughs> Nine, 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You have to feel, I have to feel every minute. <laughs> so do you see yourself retiring? Do you think you'll ever retire or will it just be like, or do you think you'll even slow down? I was going to say, will it just be slowing down? But I, I don't know. I do think period poverty is going to be here for a long time. So on mm. that front, no, I really enjoy my job in public health. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I've got another 10 years before I have to retire, fortunately. So, yeah. Um, so now I don't think, I mean, unless I'll win the lottery, that'd be quite nice. Mm. And then still, I'd probably just still do stuff. If you'd spend it all on, on other people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I probably would, yeah. yeah. You'd be like, oh, I can do all of these things with this yeah, now. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, everybody you know, aspires to win the lottery, but you don't really need a lot of money in this life. When you get, when you get to places like Kenya and you see people who don't have anything, you know, even less than, I mean, you see people here with nothing. I mean, I've been to some houses where, you know, you just think, oh my God, am I in Dickensian times? This is, mm. I can't believe people, you know, ha live half a mile away from me, live yeah. like they do, you know, in overcrowding, no, you know, nothing to eat, you know, no flooring, you know, no, ugh, it's just awful. And, you know, mm. And then when you go to Kenya and you go, I mean, I've worked in slums and things like that where, you know, people haven't got anything. They haven't even got, you know, a bed to lay on, you know, mm. that. You just think, you know, why have all these people got so much money? You don't need all this money. Mm. You know, you just do not need all this money. It's ridiculous. Uh, I was, was in Kenya and my friend, she photographs, she lives in Leeds actually, probably need to speak to her about. And, and um, she does... Um, she she photographs beach rubbish, um, and she she asked me to go and pick up on a Kenyan beach um, some Coca Cola, you know the plastic red things. Mm -hmm. So I picked up about in about two hundred yards. I picked up about fifty because mm. Coca Cola tops. She wants mm. to do a project, and then she did a project on footballs, plastic footballs, all over the world. <laughs> so I brought some back for from a beach, you know. So that's yeah. it's quite interesting. You can't, you can't go anywhere in the world. Like there's no, there's no unspoiled place now. No. You can go, you know, you go anywhere and you'll find some crisp packet or. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, everywhere. I mean, yeah. a few years ago, um, Kenya banned the plastic bag, mm. which was brilliant. Um, so, but they've now brought in bags that are made of plastic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're not actually plastic, but they're. Yeah, they are of a derivative of plastic, but um, it's not as bad anymore. It's amazing the difference in a year. Mm. Plastic everywhere. The fact that you know, like, why haven't we done that? Why have we not? Why can, why can a developing country ban the plastic? Rwanda did it. They were the first ones, weren't they? Mm. Amazing the difference. 
because too many, you know, too many people make too much money out of them. That's what the problem is. And lobbyists, I mean, for my money, all of this, like we should have been banning single-use plastics in the nineties. Like everything, you know, all of this is 30 years too late. And the sort of, you know, we're not even talking about an outright ban of all single-use plastic or anything like that. You know, there's a token of like, or oh, it'll be the straws or whatever, yeah. because they make it so hard just to actually, you know, and I think it, as well, the media kind of plays into that. It's kind of like, well, instead of all, instead of banning all the plastic, let's just ban one token piece of plastic. Yeah. That's an easier one to sell in the newspapers and offends less advertisers. Uh, it is just mad. Yeah. I mean, it's like baby wipes and nappies and you know, period products and mm. you know, Q-tips and all that sort of stuff. You know, they should have all been banned years ago or just had a, an organic version of them. Yeah, yeah, being completely redesigned so that yeah. they break down and yeah. they made too much money out of one-use plastics. That's the problem. Is that. I always think sometimes nowadays we're living in a James Bond film. <laughs> you know, you know, like somebody's about to, you know, like, I don't know whether it being Chinese prime minister or, Pu you know, Putin is going to take over the world soon. You know. <laughs> it feels like the more and more, the older you get, the more and more cynical you get and the more and more you think. <laughs> we're just living in a James Bond film now. It's all a load, you know, we're all, it's just, we're all heading for disaster. Or, mm. or, you know, or he's going to come along and save us, or somebody is. <laughs> Hope. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to keep hoping. Um, so I think we've kind of, we, we've kind of covered climate change, ecology. I think we've covered pretty much everything. Is there anything you want to sort of flag up, discuss? No, I think we've covered everything. I think I've, I've covered most things that we want to talk about, you know, freedom for girls, which is you know, yeah. passionate, my job, physical activity, you know, I, you know, I love that. I love, you know, teaching people. Okay. I have got one final question because we didn't really cover it. So, I, I mean, there's a variation on like, what three things could you change about your workplace? But I mean, if you could have, I mean, it is it's, stick to the three things, but if you could have anything, you know, you work any way you wanted it. What would be like the three things that you would change in my work? Mm. Um, would it be more hours in the day? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I do think I need more hours in the day because I just fill them, so that would be terrible. <laughs> I think I would change the way I think people more upstream need to listen to the people who are on the ground. Mm. I would change. I would definitely change the upstream. In, you know, like meet in the middle somewhere. You know, with work and things like that. So you know, people who you know, strategy and what's happening on the ground. Sometimes you know, in in your day, well, they generally don't talk to each other. <laughs> they generally don't talk to each other. I mean, yes, research and things like that is is you know is very useful, and that's what we need. Mm. Sometimes it is a totally different way of listening to people mm. i wish that um public health would recognize that period poverty is a public health issue because they've never mm. actually done that and i think that's because if they admit there's an issue they have to then sort it out yeah <laughs> so it's left to grassroots organizations like us to do that um, and it is hard work you know 
trying to get funding to do things and make sure people are all right. Mm. Um, and what's the third thing? Mm. <laughs> I can't think of the thing. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I quite like, you know, I hated working from home to start with when we first worked at home. But I quite like it. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, is there anything like, I will put all the links and everything for Freedom to Girls and anything else. I mean, is there anything that you want to flag up? Any sort of like, you know, have you got a crowdfunder still going? Is there, if people want to donate, anything like that? I do it on the website. I think that's the best way to do it. It's just a, a donate button on the website. There's, you know, there's things tagged um, pins to uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and things like that. Yeah, it's best through the website. Cool. It's all on it's all on the um, social media stuff. But yeah, if you could share that, that would be lovely. As Tina said, it's hard work trying to get funding to do things and make sure people are all right. Thank you again to Tina for being my guest and also just for everything she does. Thank you again, all my guests, and thanks to you, Bugalugs, for listening to this. Thank you as well for 500 downloads. And thank you to my first Patreon supporter. Please consider joining them and supporting this podcast. I need champions for working hours, and that's exactly what you will be by giving me £1 a month via Patreon to this podcast. That's right. It's only a quid a month for us to support and grow this project. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to sign up and offer regular support. So if you're listening to this, then I assume that you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're that person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done a record for this yet, send me a message now and let's record your working hours session. Email this podcast, workinghourspod at western-studios.com with a short bio and some suggestions of your availability, or just send me your feedback, questions, comments and queries. You can follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads. I'm really interested to hear from anyone in Leeds or from Leeds in whatever industry, sector or role you're in. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Please remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to this show. Next time on Working Hours, I will be talking to a youth worker. Come back tomorrow for that same Leeds channel. Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.